You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Good morning, everyone. My name is James Garcia. I'm an elder here at the Vine Church. Um, Today is Pastor Appreciation Sunday. That's why you're getting the B team up here. And uh, our professional pastors, James and Zach, who are uh, employed here at the Vine Church, be sure to like give them a back rub or an encouragement, a little note of appreciation. Also, the unprofessional, I don't know, is that the opposite? <laughs> our, our other elders, we got Brian and John Centineo and Chase as well, Elder Canada, be sure to, to give them a note of appreciation. And I'm self-serving, me too. Um, <laughs> as you'll find out, I'm going to... This is not an encouraging message necessarily, um, so we might all want that after this. Um, I want to have you join me in 2 Samuel chapter 12 as we continue our series on the life of David. You can turn on your Bible, open your Bible. There's blue Bibles in the back if you don't have one, and you can even keep it, Jeffrey, if you don't have one at home. I'm sure, I'm sure you do, maybe, but you can actually keep that. It's for you um, and for everybody. <laughs> All right, now, there is a slide up here for a question and answer, a Q&R, question and response, I would say, is more so descriptive of what we do. Um, I, we, I just don't think we're going to have time today in Sunday service to actually answer the questions, but um, I speak on behalf of the elders saying that we value the, the discourse that flows out of our sermons and that goes in through the week to city groups. So if you don't have this already bookmarked, um, I'm sure someone will put it on the lobby are important at some point. Uh, this is a great, or you can just scan the, co- the code right now. And then you can fill out that Google form and submit a question. We might not get to it today, but we hope to be able to respond. So, uh, yeah, go, there you go. That's, that's what we're going to be looking at this week is 2 Samuel chapter 12, which continues our series on the life of David, which we've been going through since about the spring. You'll remember that uh, David has been anointed as king, as like a, a young boy. We've gone through the journey with him, the battle with Goliath, and there was this whole like Saul thing and a civil war, and David's now king. And if you were present last week, you'll remember that we're, we're witnessing David's uh, most famous sin, right? This is one of the most famous sins in, the, in all of scripture, where we have David um, stays home from a battle, which presumably he should be at, leading the people. And he sees this woman, Bathsheba, and he has to have her, so he takes her, he has sex with her, she uh, becomes pregnant. Now, the thing is, she's married to a guy named Uriah, who's one of David's loyal men. And Uriah, David tries to trick him into like coming back and to cover up his sin. He tries to cover it up. doesn't work. Uriah's not tricked. So David sends Uriah to the heat of the battle where he is most likely to die, and Uriah is killed. David has Uriah murdered to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba. This is not a pretty picture, and today we're going to continue through that story. What happens next, right? What what happens next? Does David get off kind of scot-free? What are the consequences of this? Um, This story is going to be about, and the sermon is going to be about secret sins. David's trying to cover up his sins his secrets. And I think this is something that we all have. We all relate to deeply buried secrets, sin patterns. Um, I have one from early in life, a story I haven't really shared with too many people because it's embarrassing. 
Um, but I was about 10 or 11 helping my dad clear out the locker rooms at the gym. He was a public school PE teacher. This is something that we did during the summers for fun. Um, <laughs> Help my dad. And um, as, as part of this, I was cleaning out one of the, the boys' lockers, and I found a picture of a nude woman from a magazine. And I'm like, I'm, I don't know what to do with this. So I pocket it. I fold it up and put it in my pocket. I know I'm not supposed to have it. I don't really know what to do with this thing, but I have it, right? And I put it in my pocket, not really having a grand plan or anything, took it home and put it like in a, one of my dresser drawers, thinking this is my secret that I have. Um, and the, I don't know what I was thinking because I don't do my laundry so <laughs> at this point in my life. Um, and so my mom was putting away clothes, and I, I was in the room, and I watched her reach out for the, to the drawer, and I leapt up and jumped in front of the drawer, and I said, Mom, don't open this drawer. Just trust me. <laughs> right? <laughs> There's no pleading with mother there, right? Like, you can imagine the things that are going through her mind. What is in here, right? But I'm so embarrassed. So this, this thought, like, I can even feel my heart pumping today, thinking back to this feeling of, of shame and guilt and secret. I don't want this to be brought to the light. I don't want this to be found out. What I did, this is for real, like, what I did was I, I knew there was no pleading, so I ran. I ran out of my house, and it was dark at night, and I went into the alley behind our house, and I hid behind a dumpster, just like crouching, hiding, quivering, not knowing what to do. And that's not, been, like, this was, this is, I think, a feeling we can all relate to. And if you can't, like, I don't know where you're at in this story. For some of you, you might be at different points in the story. But I think we have, if we reckon with this, we do have sin. Some of it's secret. How are we going to deal with that? How does, how does it dealt with with the story of David? We try to hide. So here's our outline for today. We can throw that, throw that up here, here. We have see our sin. This is the outline of where we're headed. We're going to see our sin. We're going to see our sin. It's cost. We're going to see the cost of the sin, and we're going to confess. And then in the end, we have to live in light of sin's cost. There is a cost to sin. How do we live in light of that? Before we do this, let's, let's pray. God, I ask for you to have your word enter into our hearts through your Holy Spirit today. I ask that the words that I speak into this microphone, that this would be God-glorifying, it would be for your glory, that we would leave this place more, more closely attuned to who you are, that we would desire you more, that we would be more righteous in the place we entered, how we entered this place, Lord. I, I ask for the words to be only God-glorifying, for your spirit to flow through me into this room and into the ears of everyone hearing this. May this message be true for us. May the story of David reveal new truths about how, who you are and how much you want us and what you call us to. It's in your name we pray. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, let's dive into 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to start with verse number 1. We're just going to read this and kind of pause at different points as we go. Verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Who's Nathan? Nathan's a prophet. Nathan's a prophet. His job is not, he's not a prince. He's kind of like a, a counsel for the people. He speaks on behalf of the Lord for the people and to the king. And 
Um, it's supposed that perhaps David, at this moment, when Nathan's speaking to David, David was doing one of his like kingly responsibilities of um, like adjudicating cases, right? You hear about Solomon and the two women with the baby come before him. David might be kind of sitting on his throne doing some judging at this point. So Nathan brings him a case. He says, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up. He brought the sheep up. He grew up with him and with his children, the sheep, it used to eat of his morsel, like from his dishes, and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. A sweet little pet lamb. I have a picture of a sweet little pet lamb, by the way. There you go. It's about to be not so on in a second. But we, can ignore, we can absorb this part of the story, right? We, we understand, all right, this, this rich guy, he has lots of these. This poor guy, he's got this one. He's got this one special little lamb. So what happens? Verse 4. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. So the rich man has a, a guest come to him, and he doesn't want to kill one of his sheep, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. He prepared it for him. Jonathan was telling me that the VeggieTales version of this involves rubber duckies and that one person's rubber ducky gets stolen by King George. Is that true? Okay, am I telling that right? I've never seen VeggieTales, sorry. Um, But anyways, I I know. (laughs) Anyways, that's that's theft, right? Theft. He took it. He took the sheep. That's not all. Think about that pet lamb. What did this man do? This man took the lamb, killed the lamb, Cooked the lamb, ate the lamb like with, his, with his guest. Like this is, a, you know, for a, kind of like a party, it's like a gift. This is, this is heinous, right? I think we should feel outraged like by that succession of things that has happened to this poor lamb. And I think David sees, as we do, that this is, this is magnified by the, by the fact that this rich man has his own flocks. Like this is, what he does is magnified. It's not just theft. There's something else deeper going on here. So how does David respond? Verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. It's pretty harsh. Deserves to die for committing this sin. Verse 6, And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Uh, what David's doing is he's kind of quoting back from Exodus 22. If you want to nerd out on this, you can go back to Exodus 22 and see that the price for theft of livestock was fourfold restitution. So David knows his scriptures. He sees sin. He notices that this man has sinned. And I think we know where this is going. He's not noticing that he's not looking at the man in the mirror here. But David sees sin, and he knows his scriptures, which I think is indicative of something to us, that if you know your scriptures, that, doesn't, that means you can maybe recognize sin, but it doesn't mean you're recognizing it in yourself. And I'm saying that like knowing full well I'm the one up here right now. This, this, just because you know your Bible, it doesn't matter what degree you have, do you know God's heart? That's what this scripture is about. Can you, like David, know what sin is, but still sin yourself? Apparently, you can, because that's what David does 
in chapter 11, prior to the story. Now, I want to pause at this point, a little bit of a tangent that, uh, I mean, for a lot of us in this room, we recognize what this word sin is. We see that people do sin. We confessed earlier for this. But we live in a world where the majority of people, I don't, I think, I don't know about the majority, but plenty of people believe that there is no such thing as, like, sin, right? There is no such thing as capital T truth, that everything's relative, like, well, what you think is good isn't necessarily what I think is good, and, you know, it's all relativistic. I don't know if you if you even some of you might believe this. Um, 81% of U.S. residents think that humanity is inherently good. Three-quarters of people think that they themselves are good, that there's no, like, there's no problems. You just have to be good. I think a lot of us probably have encountered conversations like this. Maybe you used to believe this. Maybe you do. But we are deluded if we think that. We are deluded. This, and this is not, I want to pause here and say this is not a Gen Z, a millennial, or a Gen X thing. This is not new. In 1977, 94% of college professors rated themselves as above average compared to their peers. How can that be possible? Think about this, right? Is that, can that possibly be true? No. How can 94% of people be above average? I have to ask the question. I don't, I don't have like, you know, nice, easy, bow, wrapped in a bow answers today. But I, will, I, I believe that humanity is flawed. That all have fallen short of the glory of God, as it says in Romans 3. So we do believe that there is sin here. Now this... This complicates things, because where is that sin? Where do we see the problem? Christians often get blamed for being hypocrites because the problem is always out there. But I love the, I love the, the illustration of, you know, the fingers pointing back at you. Right? Are we willing to look in the mirror and see our own part in the sin? We have to see, not just see sin, as David does, we have to see our sin. How does, what does Nathan say to David? Verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. King James says, thou art the man, which I like that. That's, wow, has a lot of weight to it. You are the man, David. David, you recognize sin? You don't see your own sin? You're not willing to look in the mirror here? We have to recognize our own part in the sin, and this is the... The bad news that precedes something really good that we're going to get to. But we all sin. We, all of us, have nothing to prove. Zach says this, nothing, nothing to prove, lose, hide, or defend. We, are all, we all fall short of the glory of God. For some of you, I think that this, this scripture might have to be the Nathan for you today. Come to you and say, this is you. This is you. You're hiding something secret. You're willing to see sin out there. Are you willing to see it in yourself? Are you willing to actually recognize this? I, I can't convict you of this. This is something that only the Lord will convict you in your own hearts. And I don't know if something's stirring for you now or it will stir for you later or maybe not at all. But may God be gracious to us and allow us to see where do we sin. Think where are we quick to judge others? Are you and yes, I know that people are sinned against, but that's not today's message. Yes, I know that there's sin in this world and people oppress you, but this scripture is asking us to look in the mirror today. Here's what Nathan says to David. 
chapter, Thou art the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. Do you remember the sermon series? I know a lot of you have been here throughout the last months. Do you remember David being anointed? Do you remember the journey that he's been on and how God has been with him every step of the way? Think back over these months as we read about what the Lord has done. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. The Lord has blessed David tremendously. Much like the rich man in that, the, the story that Nathan was telling to David. The rich man has lots of flocks. David, you've been blessed. That magnifies what he's done. It wasn't like a poor man with one sheep stole the other man's sheep who also had one. It wasn't like an equal thing. It was, you've been blessed and you've done this. David doesn't, and this is what's, I think the kicker is David doesn't just betray Uriah. He doesn't just betray Bathsheba. He doesn't just betray his people. David betrays the Lord, right? Look, think of all these blessings, and the Lord is saying to him, this has all been given to you. You've been on this journey, and you still Stepped into sin. Verse 9 clarifies this for us. It says, why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. In his sight. So first of all, despising the word of the Lord. This, this calls out sin for what it really is. That when we sin, all of us, and we've already acknowledged this, that each of us has sinned. When we're doing that, we are despising the word of the Lord. We are, in verse 14, it says we're scorning him, or David scorns the Lord. And we do what is evil in his sight. And I think we, we could take back to, to James's message last week that when we sin, I think a lot of times we think we're doing it out of God's sight. If I'm honest, if, I, if I'm honest, when I, when I choose sin, when I choose anger, it's I'm doing it because I'm hedging my bets that maybe God isn't real. I'm doing it like, oh, maybe God can't see me. I'm kind of like, you know, skirting his omnipresence. That's it's foolish. Bonhoeffer's quote, uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer's quote that James gave us last week was, Satan does not fill us with the hatred of God, but with the forgetfulness of God. So you might think, well, I don't despise God. I like him. But I think we despise him by our forgetfulness. We try to evade his sight. Think back to Adam and Eve. This has been the story since the beginning, trying to hide from his sight. Now what it says next is, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Let's pause there. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Now technically, did David actually kill Uriah? No. Not according to the scriptures, he died on battle. Did he technically kill him? I think this is, this is a trap for a lot of us. Well, technically, technically we're not sinning. Technically, I didn't actually murder Uriah. 
You might be saying that in your heart to things. Like, technically, I can, I can kind of skirt this sin by, by uh, evading the heart of the law, but Jesus calls this out in, in Matthew, right? In, the, in his Sermon on the Mount, he, he speaks out against murdering somebody. Like, we're all murderers when we are angry at someone in our hearts. We commit adultery when we let our eyes linger too long on someone else, when we seek forbidden love outside of marriage, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, David. You've done this. And this, by the way, has been about a year since all of this, the, the narrative with Uriah and Bathsheba has happened. A lot of people think it's been about a year. Some people think it's even been longer that David has been away from the Lord, you know, like not exposing this truth. And God comes to him. And it says, you have taken his wife to be your wife. And killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So I hope we can see our sin. I, I, I don't know if this is convicting you today. It has convicted me for months since I've seen this on the, the preaching calendar, knowing that I had to look through this. We need to see our sin. But we also need to see its cost. We need to see the cost of that sin. What is the, the, the consequence or the, the outcome or the, the price that's paid? There's lots of ways we could phrase this, but... Verse 10, this is going to be a cost to David's family and his legacy. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah to be your wife. This is a prophecy. The sword shall never depart from your house. You can look, at, look ahead at chapter 13 and you'll see there's a story of Amnon and Tamar. Those are two of David's children. Amnon rapes Tamar. This is horrific. Later on, Absalom, one of David's other children, murders Amnon for that very crime. In fact, this is, if you, I don't know if this is interesting, but four of David's children meet a violent end, like a fourfold repayment, kind of like David thought about in the law. Verse 11 says, it gets, it gets worse. That Absalom guy, he's prophesied here. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. This is about Absalom. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. What Absalom does is he kicks David out of being king. He like exiles him and tries a coup. He try, Absalom uh, tries to assert his own kingship. It's his turn. And when he does this, when he successfully kicks David out and makes him exiled, much like he does with Saul, like if, you're like if you read the Psalms and you read about Absalom and Saul, this sounds kind of familiar. Yes, David goes through exile again. Absalom, during that time, sets up a tent on the roof of the palace and sleeps with all of David's wives and his concubines. It's horrific. This is awful. This is prescribed here. This is like prophesied here. And this is, and if we look further, I think verse 12 has a little bit about um, the shame culture. Jackie pointed out to me, like, in the, in the, in the purpose of, like, a, a culture like this one, this, the publicity of this. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing, what Absalom's going to do before, this, uh, before all Israel and before the sun. Everybody's going to see. What you did in secret, everybody will see. 
I think this, if, if we can take this and apply it to our own lives, what we do in secret is exposed to all. There are no secrets before the Lord. But I also want to say that I struggle with this. I don't know if anybody else does. This seems a little harsh, right? Like this seems, I mean, all this stuff's happening to these women and these, these kids, and it, it kind of gets worse, as you'll see. How do we deal with God's justice? And I don't have a really, like, one, you know, sentence answer for this, but um, God's justice is a good thing. God, God is infinitely just. God does not allow sin to go unpaid. Because if you're sinned against, you know this feeling. How does David react to this, knowing what his, the cost of the sin is to his, to his house, to his legacy, to his children? How David reacts to this, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He confesses. He uses very few words. In Hebrew, this is just two words. But he is specific. I think David's cut to the heart of what he's done. A lot of people might think that maybe he's saying here, like, he's, maybe is he not acknowledging his guilt against Bathsheba? Is he not acknowledging his guilt against Uriah? I think we can wrap all of that against, like, what has he really done? He sinned against the Lord. And when we see our sin and its cost, that this distances us from the Father, we recognize what we've done. David does. I think he's earnest here in his confession. And what follows is beautiful. Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put all, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. He confesses, he receives mercy and not death. The very thing, mind you, that he said the man in the story deserved. The man in the story deserved death. And the words of comfort that Nathan gives to David is, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. How did David get to this point where he could confess this and receive this mercy? I don't want to overlook the presence of Nathan in the story. God was working through Nathan. God was pursuing David, even though David was trying to sit away from God and live in the secrecy of his sin, thinking he'd covered it up. God came to David through Nathan. How is God coming to you today? God pursues you. If God pursues David, how much more will he want to pursue all of his people? He wants to be with us. This is the story of Scripture that God wants to be with us. He wants us to worship him. He wants us to experience full love from the Father. And David receives mercy freely. He receives mercy freely. And some, some would say undeservedly. I do. But this doesn't mean that because he receives mercy freely that this mercy is cheap. Right? This, this mercy has a cost. As we've already acknowledged, that we see, our, we see sin, we see our sin, we see that it has a cost, and we confess, just like David did here. This mercy comes at a cost. His sin does not stay just within his own little personal life. It extends to those around him. Verse 14, we see that the cost of sin is death. 
Verse 14, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. This is unfathomable. I don't even really want to imagine this sort of loss. This is very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable verse that we have what's happening here. That someone else would, would die and it was David who sinned. But verse 14, and this discomfort that I feel at this moment, looking at this, I think points us right to the cross. If, the, if you feel this discomfort right now, I want you to feel that and own that and recognize that when we talk about Jesus' atoning death on the cross, that someone else died for your sins, here you go. This is spoken to in the scriptures. This is like a, a pointing forward. This is, this is a pointing forward of this, this child. And we should be uncomfortable with the idea of a representative dying for us. David sees the cost of the sin of the people around him. And let's read what he does. Nathan went to his house, verse 15. Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. Here we go. And he became sick. David, therefore. So what's David going to do? In light of all of this, his repentance, how does he, in light of his confession, how does he turn? Does he turn? He sought God on behalf of the child. Though David knew what the Lord was doing, he petitions on behalf of the child, asking God to spare the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. This is a fasting, a seeking the Lord. And if we really take David's words that he repented, I have sinned against the Lord, that he confessed, this represents repentance, that he is now seeking the Lord instead of staying away from him, that he's seeking the Lord on behalf of this child. So we have seen our sin. We have seen the cost of sin, and now we have to live in light of sin's cost. But here's the good news. Sin's cost has been paid. Let's see what happens in this narrative, verse 18. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead, he may do himself some harm? If you can think back over the narratives with David, he doesn't always receive news of death well. Sometimes those messengers don't have their, that it doesn't end up well for them. We know that when Jonathan died and when Saul died, David grieved. But David sees this in verse 19 when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead, and David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is. He is dead. How is David going to react to this? Like, if we've, if we've seen David confess, if we can take his heart of confession and turn, he's, he's now focusing on the Lord, seeking the Lord, what is he going to do in this moment? It's, it's very strange what he does. 
Then David arose from the earth. He washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. Why is he like getting all, why is he doing that? And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. This is very strange for David to have done this rather than doing his, his typical grieving that he's done with Jonathan or Saul. So there's something, what this means to me is that there's something different about David at this point than prior when he's received news of death earlier. There's something about David where he's repented. Repenting, when we define this, means not just like a, a confession, but a turning away, a turning away from. Something in David's heart is causing his heart to turn towards God. David then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. So he seems to be worshiping God. He seems to have something in his heart that's changed, and this is a strange faith. But when we look at sin's cost, and we recognize that it's been paid, and we shall not die like the news that David received, then this looks very bizarre to the world. Verse 21, then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food? David said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? It's a very strange faith, but look at these sweet, comforting words here at the end. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. This is David speaking of a reunion, an expectant reunion. This is so comforting. This is, I think we overlook this, right? That when we think about heaven, maybe we think about like a, uh, a big like worship session or something, and there, this is not a sermon about what heaven is like, but there is a glimpse of reunion with the people whom we've loved and lost. And David's faith leads him to believe that he will see his son. And this is, I, I, I love that David's faith is pre-cross. All right, this is, this is a, a, a strange faith uh, in that he, doesn't, he didn't even know, like a thousand years later, we have Jesus, right? This is pre-Jesus, and yet we in here, we should have this strange faith waiting expectantly because I think we focus on the cross and the atoning sacrifice. We, we are getting to where Jesus fits in and how he is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, that we can glory in God's payment for our sin. But let's think about that, David, or that Jesus didn't stay on this cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead, promising to see his disciples and promising to come again and promising a reunion with him. That's what we hope in. That's what we hope in. This is amazing news that David has such a faith and such a hope in light of this awfulness. Not only has he sinned, I mean, he's, he still has to deal with this weight of this sin that he's committed and the death of the people around him and the promise of what's going to happen. I, here's something that, that kind of struck me this week um, as I was listening to, to various like, other pastors talk about this sermon uh, or this, this text and their, their sermons. Uh, someone pointed out that a lot of us look at David's life, the life of David, and we see his peak as you know, Goliath when he's like in the desert and you know, uh, kind of casting his, his cares to the Lord. We look at that as like, oh, that's peak David, and all of this is just that you know, 
dropping down from there. It's all downhill from here. And surely, David has sinned, and this is bad. Things are not going to get better with his family, and we have prophecy here for that. But what if, what if David's repentance, what if his confession of secret sin and his repentance brings something new to him in his life? What if this allows him to live with a strange sort of faith where he knows that God can put away the sins in his life despite the fact that he has fallen, he is broken, but he's received mercy? And what if that's changed him? Do you see that this is maybe how we are to live? That post-repentance, post-confession, when we receive God's mercy and he says, I've put away your sin, you shall not die. How can we live differently? Well, seemingly, what happens is, in, in the story, God blesses David. Even though David is a sinner, we recognize this, right? David has sinned grievously, but verse 24, David comforted his wife Bathsheba, went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. She bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. The Lord loved him that he gave him a pet name. That's kind of what verse 25 is about. Solomon, he sent a, a message by the Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This is just a, a second name for Solomon here. Solomon derives from the Hebrew word for peace. Jedidiah is about being beloved of the Lord. Solomon and this Jedidiah thing represents how God blesses David with peace and love despite his sin, undeservingly, indiscriminately, to people who don't deserve it. You're telling me that God gives peace and love to people who don't deserve it. He does, doesn't he? And if you know the story with Solomon, this is, you go, go to the genealogy of Jesus. What David did in sin, what David did in sin, taking Bathsheba, killing Uriah, God will use that sin to write his own story. And we have, through the line of Solomon, it leads to Jesus. I think we should live in a way where we can trust God. We confess, we repent. We trust God to rewrite those, story, those sins into his stories for his kingdom, for his use. And David, I do think we're going to do the Cliff Notes version of the rest of this chapter. It, is, it, it tends to get overlooked. I'm not going to um, lecture to you, but I would encourage you to read it. What ends up happening is David seemingly does repent. He goes into battle. The very battle, if you remember the chapter, chapter 11, the very beginning of it, it says he didn't go out to battle. He does. God gives him victory. God gives him a blessing. And then the, there's this whole thing about a crown um, that could mean any number of things, but it, it's emphasis is on it that it's heavy. Could this mean that David has a heavy burden, a heavy crown to bear for the rest of his life? Even though he is blessed, he still has this weight of this sin can you imagine David and Bathsheba throughout the rest of their lives thinking back, watching as their children and their stepchildren and their, like, that all of the, everybody like goes awry, everything is seemingly sin-ridden. David has to deal with this heaviness. 
So when we, when we talk about living in, in light of sin's cost, that God uses our sins to write his stories, that he has paid it all on the cross for us, that doesn't mean that we don't have to, this, this heaviness. David has to deal with this for the rest of his, his life. But if God can pursue David as a sinner, let's, let's just call it what it is. David is a sinner. He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. And God pursued him. God desires to be with David so much that he came to him and said, you are that man. He came to him through the prophet Nathan. He is pursuing you. I, I believe this. God wants each and every one of his people, including you and I, to be with him. And so as we seek to apply this, I have a few different points. One, I, need you to, I want you to see your sin. I have some verses up here that I think should help. Um, and, and to see your sin, you can't keep it secret. It needs to be brought into the light to be seen. If we confess our sins, this is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. How the story resolved with me hiding behind that dumpster was my mom did come out and was seeking me like, James, what are you doing? And I do remember a, like a street light in the alley and I had to come out and that's, that's where I met my mother there. And I don't remember the rest of the story. I got in trouble. I was being sought. And I think this is what God is perhaps doing for you. He's calling you to him. I want you to see your sin. I also want you to see the cost of your sin being paid. And the good news, Christian, and the good news, everyone, is that the cost of your sin was paid by Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 1, 9, that thing about, about if, we are, uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. It continues in the very next chapter. My little children, here's what John says to us. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There is forgiveness in Christ for you. We have all sinned. Confess your sin. Know that it's been paid by Christ. See the cost of your sin being paid by him. And then we have to live in light of this. For, for a lot of you, I know you, you've heard this. You know that you are sinful. You know that we come here and we confess. We know the gospel, the thing upon which we orbit. And you hear this, how do I keep living? How do I keep living if I sin? I have to ask myself the same question. I still sin, right? We're, we're, not, we're not sinless for the rest of our lives necessarily because we've become Christian. In fact, I think God wants us to lean more into him, right? And God wants to be with you. He is pursuing you. Romans 5.10, it says this, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We have new life. We have new life in the forgiveness that's offered in Christ's death and his resurrection. And if David can be forgiven for, for all of the past junk he's done, you can receive God's mercy 
We, re- we confess, we repent, we receive that mercy, and I believe we're changed fundamentally. When we repent, we have a change of heart. It says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are changed because the life that we now live is Christ's. This is a substitutionary atonement. And God has mercy for all of you. In one of the saddest books of the Bible, Lamentations 3, 23, if you think, I'm outside of this, James. Like, I'm not. I, I get it. Christians can feel, feel good and forgiven, but I've done things in secret. God can't forgive. Lamentations 3, 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. This is hard news today. It's hard news that David had to hear, you are the man. For some of you, you're, you're standing, you feel, you feel it, you feel guilty inside of you. You know what the action points are for you next, right? To, to confess. What I want us to do now is to confess before the Lord. Join me in prayer. God, we ask for your mercy for your forgiveness you have so much to give you are, you have you have infinite justice you have sin paid for but you have infinite mercy you're infinitely merciful and kind to us lord this difficult text this difficult word that we hear about david being pronounced guilty we see him see his sin and yet he confesses lord would you give us courage to confess would you give us hope in new life, renewal and repentance, Lord, that we will seek you, that our lives can be changed, that you will rewrite these sins into your stories. God, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We thank you for your pursuit of us, that you are pursuing us today. Lord, bless us. May we open-handedly bow before you and receive the blessings you want us to have. Lord, thank you for the mercy offered at the foot of the cross. Thank you that Jesus says that today you'll be with me in paradise to the thief that's next to him. Lord, we confess that oftentimes we don't believe. We want to do things out of your sight, but you see all. Lord, today will you call us closer to you you call us to be hopeful and waiting for an anticipation, a reunion with you, the one who loved us so much that you sent your son into this world to die and pay the price on behalf of sinners and to raise to newness of life to guarantee life with you forever. Christ, have mercy on us. Amen.